after all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. Our beautiful baby boy, Craig. There he is. Oh, my God. We missed him. Oh, my gosh. Happy Pride Month, Craig. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Craig's clear. As far as we... I mean, he's literally a bear, right? It has to be Craig queer that sounds too similar for it not to name be. one straight craig that you know i, don't... I can't sure they're not straight craig gives me like uh david cross energy i don't know how to say it okay <clears throat> it's giving gay <laughs> yeah all right i agree with that well Welcome back to the greenhouse, uh, dear listeners. Um, this is going to be our first release for Pride Month, and our second release of our series we're doing on film and film culture. So, joining me is you're you're not co-host status, um, Sky. Yeah, it's me. Yay! And please welcome back to the greenhouse, returning guest. We love having them around. Please welcome the Emperor Kennedy. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I love so. Film. I'm excited to be here. Folks, film. We love it. Yeah. We've seen a lot of film. A lot of film today, folks. A lot of, a lot, a lot of movies. Some would say the best movies. Um, but I, I'm, I'm I almost got a degree it. in film. Oh, it's for real? Long- it's a long story why I didn't. I don't know if I want to get into all of it, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I I'm very into film. I have studied film intensively for a long time. So you've seen one or two films. I I've remember. seen at least four films, actually. Oh, four! Yeah, I think I might have seen five, but I don't really remember the fifth one. So understandable. Yeah. I think I think I'm going to start including this as like a mandatory question for every guest we have on uh, Movie Magic now. Um, oh, just just off the cuff, what are your opinions on Marvel movies? Oh, um, I mean, I I'm not gonna say that they are all universally horrible. Like, there's a lot of them, and it's complicated, but they're pretty bad. Um, okay. <laughs> they're they're pretty generally kind of nonsensical. There's just like a lot of CGR CGI particles flying around a lot, and those action scenes don't actually look that good a lot of the time. Um, uh, the storylines in general are pretty toxic and manipulative, and uh, you know just don't respect you as a viewer so mm-hmm. <laughs> is, that, is that enough <laughs> that, 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 that is the mandatory amount of marvel hate i expect of every guest you're <laughs> you're in the clear now um um yeah, yeah i'll say i'll say just one more thing before we move past this point perhaps or whatever's coming next mm-hmm. here which is just that uh, the the Marvel movies are emotionally hijacking you in order to make you think that they are 
of some kind of quality. And if you're watching them and you're thinking, oh, but those storylines, it's all emotional hijacking. They're just playing Mm -hmm. with your feelings for the sake of playing with your feelings. There's no purpose to any of this shit. It's just to fuck with you. Would you say that concept is a little resonant with the movie we're about to get into today? I mean... I... No. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I just well, I, I was just being curious. It's resonant, it's resonant in the sense that the the film is also a meta commentary on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? But is Mulholland Drive emotionally hijacking you as a viewer? No, it's it not everything is emotionally hijacking simply by having traumatic things, but the point is that some movies, and Marvel movies do this a lot, will uh, sort of use a traumatic element to grab your attention, but then not really follow through on that element in a particularly meaningful way. It's just there to sort of bait you into feeling like the movie is more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of an example in a Marvel movie off the top of my head because, honestly, it's probably been two or three years since I've seen a Marvel film. Um, but, uh, you know, any time when, like, movies bring the threat of harm of children into them for no apparent reason but just to, like, sort of, like, ramp the stakes up, that's emotional hijacking. Mm-hmm. Things like that, so... Marvel movies do that kind of crap a lot. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially because you have to watch. You can't just watch one Marvel movie and understand completely what is happening in the movie. You have to watch multiple of them. And they get you on to that, like, oh, well, you can, if you're really into binging, there's so many movies you can binge. And if you really want something to look forward to like twice or three times a year you got a marvel movie and it it really does suck because you're just like when do normal people stop really like fucking with marvel when it's just been what 15 years 20 plus if you count like the first spider-man that we've been invested into this shit long fucking time and like they have like a, a a moral hollowness to them at this point that is pretty profound um and like uh you think <laughs> of like uh uh the villain in Black Panther what is his name Killmonger Killmonger is Killmonger. obviously right about nearly everything and in order to turn you against them, they have to add this completely nonsensical scene where he kills his girlfriend. And it's like, they have to throw that in there yeah. because otherwise you would just side with Killmonger, right? Or the part where it's like, I was in the army, but just so I can learn how to kill. And they don't want us to be like, damn, people be just killing in the army like obviously we know that but like people go in this because they enjoy killing and they don't want us to like thinking about that they're like oh he's just a absolute horrible person like 
No, I think a lot of people might end up doing that. Like, right. Seems more realistic than not. Yeah, I remember someone like in defense of Marvel movies was saying like they're like modern day myths and speaking to like, you know, the depth of moral hollowness that you mentioned. It's kind of telling that like these are our society's myths. But I, I didn't want to just bring up Marvel to like bash the MCU. We can do that. You know, for hours. They, they are like I'll modern day myths day. in the sense that a lot of historical myths were also created to enforce some kind of cultural hierarchy or racism. Exactly. Exactly. But it, that's the thing is like, you know, with Marvel movies, they are this kind of like emotional hijacking experience where you're trying to make sense of it and it's trying to impart on you some kind of fixed moral message but with the film that you encouraged me to watch for this one which was Mulholland Drive it actually had me reconsider you know like what is film meant to be for a viewer and for film to be something as more of an experience than something that's like polemic or didactic and at best is is one of those ideas that i think we're missing today of film as an experience and let's let's maybe yeah, just get let's, into let's, mulholland drive we don't, now, we don't have to talk about marvel you know, anymore let's no, that was bashed. a great segue <laughs> um and yeah mulholland drive and a lot of lynch's work in general um and i know that you had some some thoughts about us getting into a little of the meta here. Uh, a lot of Lynch's work in general does kind of mm-hmm. ask a question about the purpose of filmmaking, not necessarily intentionally, but just because it is so different than a lot of other film. Um, and I think that, and especially like mm-hmm. high budget film. Um, and I think that, um, I don't know, I think it's it's cool for film to just sort of be an experiential thing sometimes that doesn't always have to follow the strictest plot structure but at the same time like just like almost everyone else uh i i also get bored of like shitty art films you know so it's like i don't want things to just have absolutely Mm -hmm. no no interest or no structure necessarily but does everything have to be fully structured and i do admit that that's that's a challenging thing to try to divide or you know a bridge to try to cross or whatever i'm trying to say no i I think that makes a ton of sense and to be honest this was my first exposure to lynch's work i think i watched um zizek's documentary which was uh what was it the pervert's guide to cinema and he did a deep dive on um blue velvet which and when we get into David Lynch's own view of his films, we can revisit that point. But Lynch has this well-deserved reputation for his films, and particularly their kind of abstract and like tendency mm-hmm. to have multiple in, like interpretations. But also, um, Lynch's own like treatment of the work. Where he's like, well, I mean, you can perceive yeah. it how you want to perceive it. And you can see into it as deeply or as shallowly as you want. 
And that's the kind of experience I was having watching this movie is like, I was trying to read into the subtext, but also on its face. Very fun. David Lynch definitely never loses sight of the idea that film should be entertainment, you know, that this art should be entertaining. Um, Mm -hmm. which I think makes him different than some other kind of like high art type filmmakers who get that kind of reputation. Although no one exactly has David Lynch's reputation, but, (laughs) but you know, to the extent to which there, there Mm -hmm. are some other filmmakers that are sort of perceived in that artsy way. Um, a lot of them don't, don't really, uh, don't really have the same attention to like, just pure raw entertainment that David Lynch does. David Lynch truly loves mm-hmm. just like a just popcorn soap opera that you can just consume. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And that was that was something about your analysis of this where like um I think one of the themes we wanted to discuss was um soap operas and murder mysteries um to be honest i don't have that much exposure with like american soap operas i've seen like relatives watch things like you know bold and the beautiful and whatnot but i think that is accurate to kind of describe some of the scenes in this movie as this kind of soap opera setting and i wanted to see if you could touch on that a little bit more Sky, I think you have more experience with soaps than I do, but <laughs> yes, as a um, former former general <laughs> hospital nerd, okay. um, oh, for yeah. a good part of my life. Um, yes, the like the drama, even like the like I know it's a newer, but like that haze that just reminds me of like especially like '90s soap operas. And you can tell that it's not because of like the quality of the camera, like done. So you can get that vibe. Um, the mystery part of it, like all soap operas have like some random bitch trying to solve a mystery. Um, usually it's about her lover, about somebody else's lover, and something like that. The multiple relationships, the love triangle, um, the amnesia, that's classic like soap opera which is like literally amazing because how many like like how often do people actually like get amnesia for a long period of time and can't like don't remember anything and have to have people help put together the pieces of their life other than on a soap opera um so like that is just like amazing uh, it it did remind me that like I was just watching something that my mother would watch, without like if it wasn't that like <laughs> sexual, because um, I don't think my mom would watch anything <laughs> with lesbians. <laughs> but I, I don't think she would not watch something with lesbians in it. So I don't know. It'd be the kind of thing where she's like, "What, what are you doing here? Go back to your room." <laughs> Like I'm pretty sure the soap the soaps have lesbians on them now. I'm not sure, but I can guess. Well, I mean, what constitutes a soap nowadays? Like maybe um that Netflix that Netflix um 
renewal of dynasty but it's not really a soap it's it really like, isn't it's like a prestige drama now like it's kind of like um what's that one show um with the rich kids fuck that's all about <laughs> gossip girl no not gossip girl um <sighs> succession right. it's like succession but shittier oh don't Sure. Well, that is kind of. <laughs> mm, go ahead. But yeah, like soaps. Oh, I was just gonna say, like soaps, they are like they have to be real corny. Like Dynasty is close to being like the new Dynasty is close to being a soap, but it's it doesn't have that corniness. Like it's so close because it does have a lot of corny moments. As somebody who's like halfway caught up on the show, um, but like. There's a level of drama and also low budgetness. And that's the difference between this movie and a normal soap. Like this has the budget. It has the the show efforts. It's not corny. It's not cheesy. Um Yeah, I think also uh there's an aspect of soap opera that it should be sort of it doesn't have to be necessarily, but a lot of it is sort of mimicking of something in some way. Like, I think that's why Dynasty in part feels Mm -hmm. a little soapy is because it's just so obviously like we're doing succession, but we did it faster and cheaper and with less, (laughs) you know, less everything, basically. (laughs) Um, And I think in a weird way, Mulholland Drive does have like an aspect of that. But it's also, like, it's prestigious in its own right. And it's not really, like, aping a particular property, but it's just more, like, the ways in which it has, like, meta-commentary about the film industry uh, woven into it kind of, in a Mm -hmm. way, actually lends itself even more to having that soap opera feeling, I guess. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad that both of you kind of expounded on, you know, the kind of soap opera tropes. Me growing up, you know, I'm more familiar with like Indian soaps that my mom watched. And to give like a to give a better a bit of context, they're more like Latin American novellas really, where the melodrama is accentuated throughout and I guess for whatever reason I assume that American soaps were more subtle. No. They're not more subtle, but like I think there is that like high art form though, like the very smooth photography and the very like like how to really describe it because like I will say that like telenovelas and Indian soaps like they are more I think more dramatic like there's like but by composition you know what I mean like the the jump cuts the like zooming in on people's faces. Mm-hmm. Like, the slapping, like yeah, <laughs> slapping happens in all soaps. Like that, that's true. That's bitches true. be love slapping each other. It's like bam, all those horrible slaps. Um, but like, I guess America has more. Like their American soaps are trying to mimic more like um, scripted television, like normal scripted television, and not like soapy, but. 
all other ethnicity soaps. They're like, I'm giving you drama. I'm giving you sex. I won't let you even breathe without the next thing happening to take the, your breath away. Yeah. Like that, the fast pace and American slow. I think the tension slower. is really the part yes. because the tension and the, the tension. suspense. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like, where's the tension place? Um, in American soaps, it's usually placed at the end of the scene before you go into commercial break mm -hmm. to get people to really want to like come back to it and not want to uh, change the channel. I think that's like more of what American soaps are where like, like you don't need that for like telenovelas, like the auntie going to be there. She going to be there watching it no matter what. Somebody it's going to be on in someone's kitchen and it's going to be on in someone's shop. So that drama, like, even if it's like you doing normal stuff and then like you see a bitch get slapped and you're like, oh, oh. And now you're like engulfed into the telenovela where like soaps, they don't have that much like draw in unless you are someone who's always watched them. Mm. Yeah. I think, yeah, American soaps have... The, the biggest difference is definitely it's this subtle stylistic thing um, with the pacing, and also this bleeds into, like, some of the cinematography and stuff, too. Because in some ways, the cinematography is not so different in, like, an American soap and a telenovela a lot of the time. It's, like, a lot of, like, straight shots of just, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> interior scenes and stuff like that. Um, but it's, like, the way that you have these, like, shots linger and things like that in an American soap. You know, how often in an American soap is there just, like, a long shot of just someone just being sinister and not even saying anything? It's like they've already wrapped up their dialogue. But it's, like, they're still, like, the the camera just stays on them for a minute as they're just, like, loading their gun or whatever. And drinking a glass of whiskey. And just, you know, that smoky haze fills the room slowly or whatever. You know? And it's just like that. Right. That kind of, like, moodiness. I think that's what's somewhat unique about American soap operas. Mm -hmm. So, on the subject of how this film kind of came together, I think, like... It's really interesting because David Lynch does not have like a very like highfalutin kind of view of himself. <laughs> um, he is not a man who is like up his own ass about his own art most of the time. Yeah, he doesn't give me that Tarantino vibe where like he wears the auteur patch on his sleeve. He's like I'm the greatest alive. It's like, yeah, Tarantino no, you're just really... weird. <laughs> Tarantino is exceptionally proud of the films that he's made. Now, has Tarantino made some pretty good films? Sure. But, like, he is, he, he thinks that, yeah, he is, you know, like, one of God's gifts to cinema or whatever. And it's like, okay, buddy. You're <laughs> Slow down. a white dude. Come on. <laughs> Y'all all can't be God's gift. <laughs> but then, like, yeah, David Lynch, like, there is he has that tendency of like i'm just a dude i made a movie once uh, i guess it's like I, I made a few of them and then um what are they about i don't know you tell me <laughs> um or he'll just be like they're about 
people who live in houses or something <laughs> <laughs> on this earth <laughs> that, that's it that's all you need to know that, that's something i remember like people reading into lynch you know is like what is lynch saying about the communities that these films are, are you know about so like is blue velvet about the suburbs and how like there's weird shit that goes on in the suburbs is Mulholland Drive supposed to be about like upper LA society and how like everything's weird under the surface. Okay, so I wanted to get into this because Mulholland Drive isn't supposed to be about anything. All right, and yeah. and I say this not just because David Lynch sort of his you know he always suggests that sort of thing about his films in his in his interviews or whatever. But no 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 no, Mulholland Drive was a actual so basically. A bunch of what became Mulholland Drive was originally filmed as a TV pilot. Mmm. And uh, the pilot wasn't picked up, and instead, Lynch shopped it to a film studio and said, let me film some more stuff and turn this into a film. And they said, okay, and he got, you know, everybody back on board, filmed about, like, another hour's worth of what's in the final product. I'm sure, you know, how, who knows how many hours of raw footage, because Lynch is like, that he films so much. Um, that's, I think that's one of the secrets to his success, is he just, he'll film like, 55 hours of footage, and then cut it down to like, 15 minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the actors are like, why did I learn all of these lines? I mean, but it's that obsessiveness that makes some of his stuff really good. Because it's almost like how the Eric Andre show works, right? Like, Eric Andre tortures someone for, like, three to five hours, depending on how long they'll put up with it. And, and it's a 20-minute episode, yeah. The, well, the episode is 20 minutes. The, the one interview, a lot of times, is, like, four minutes of that. So really think about that. I literally thought about that the last time we watched the Eric Andre show and just was like, I would love to see, like, uh, even if it's not the full, just like some of the highlights that weren't put into the show, that would be amazing. Or give me just the unedited, like, interview, just straight up. I would love to watch that of some of these people because it's like the T.I. one. T.I. is one that I would love to see how long he actually lasts because he'd be on some homophobia shit and I know he was not feeling Eric Andre during that one. No. I oh, think he God. only lasted like an hour and 30 or an hour and 45, something like that. But they made like three parts of that interview, which means they probably took that full hour and got a lot of what they wanted out of it. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> But, um, David Lynch is a little like that, you know? Mm -hmm. He captures a lot of shit and then sifts through it, looking for that perfect little gem. So anyway, so he, so, so this was all a TV pilot. <clears throat> then he filmed a bunch more stuff, recut it. Who knows what that TV pilot was like? I'd love to see that, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And, because uh, it was, like, presumably a somewhat different story from yeah. how it's all been described. 
and then made that into this movie, which is now considered by a lot of folks to be one of the greatest films possibly ever made. Um, so mm. it's kind of it's kind of hilarious because it's like there's a lot that you can sort of read into this as possible commentary, but literally, David Lynch was not trying to uh, have a 50 layers of onion movie here. He was just like, well, that TV pilot didn't take off, but God, this is great footage. Uh, let me do something else with it. They need to look at these lesbian scenes we got cooking up, and I'm happy he allowed that to happen. Did he allow that to happen, or did he want that to happen? I don't care. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep it real with you. In this situation, I don't care. It was hot. I feel like David Lynch was looking respectfully when he made this. <laughs> you know, he was uh he was maybe awkward, but he was he was he was trying to uh he was still trying to show a little respect in the process maybe. <laughs> I mean, what would this story be if it was only like if it was a man and a woman? Like wouldn't it be very different? completely well there is a man though and it is the... that if oh the, yeah there were yeah. the two like if the relationship was between a man and a woman oh it'd be completely different and also it, i mean how much would this movie suck if it was queer baiting and it was just like maybe they're into each other maybe they're not that's what i thought uh, that was gonna happen i thought it was gonna be like real just like insinuating and i was gonna be like well, um like being my little like eleven year old self being like girls are in the movie together and they're not best friends. Um <laughs> but like I was pleasantly surprised because usually they just it plays up like oh my god they love each other they're besties girl bosses and it's like you're telling me that this amazing love story you're saying is a platonic love which can happen but you're saying this one with the sexual um, tension is platonic love. Oh, okay. Well, and also I think it's harder to believe some of the lengths that uh, Betty goes for Rita mm-hmm. mm. if she's not hot for her, right? Like, you know, like when you're, when you're really hot for somebody, you'll kind of like, Lose your mind over it. Do crazy stuff that you would you be not doing know. risky shit. You'd right. just be sitting there in a parking structure at 2 a.m. trying to figure out what's going on. Let me tell you, if I saw that woman in my aunt's house and she's just like, oh, I don't know what's going on. She could be an uh, international super spy and she would get my ass because I would have been like, yes, come <laughs> in, take a shower. Um, well, that's the like thing. She caught food. her taking a shower. It was game it's over then. Oh, your house now. Can I live in it? Um, <laughs> it's just the worst. <clears throat> yeah, it was definitely yeah. A, a lot of movies that that queer bait you. Part of the problem is it does make it less believable. And here, it's just like once you realize that, like. Betty is, in fact, super hot for Rita. A detail that will become even more important, you mm-hmm. know, as the movie continues on uh, and changes form, especially. 
um it just kind of makes sense of everything all the weirdness i don't know <laughs> like it just feels like it adds a level of believability to the movie that's really important yeah yeah because like it, it also just like a lot of the scenes that come up prior to this are like men at their worst kind of deal like the scenes with the director and um the other studio execs arguing that's like typical like business dude nonsense or even like the director going back to his like uh his the his ex-wife's house i think to like go get something well i mean and then he catches and he catches her Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> yeah they in that situation they weren't exes um that was his house and he like he was catching her oh. on him with billy ray cyrus which was an amazing little cameo because especially living in the the uh, the world where the mullet has come back and um <laughs> it is amazing to see to see it resurface so much better especially on queer people mostly and like billy ray what the fuck were you doing it's still horrible on him like it still looks absolutely <laughs> like how dare hannah montana's dad do this that's all i kept thinking about that entire time but uh, yeah like just get, getting to that point it is <laughs> um there was that scene where like it's her audition and it was kind of bizarre the way the audition worked where basically you have a bunch of execs sitting around the room doing like you know a line reading but also acting out this very intimate and somewhat sensual kiss and the discomfort in the scene is palpable because betty has to make out with this guy who's like probably twice her age at that point and it's this very convincing uh active heterosexual romance and the fact that you know her and rita then go at it after the fact gave a lot of that like unease i felt watching that scene a lot of relief i was like oh thank god she's with someone she actually likes oh god <laughs> it was also a crazy scene because like the idea of a a young beautiful actress going into like very young this is her first movie um like her first role that she's auditioning from she just got it as soon as she got into town and then she's just going and kissing this older dude who's like touching on her and they're having this very intense scene and she's just okay with it like she's not creeped out she's not she's not um nervous or anything she's just like yeah i'm a professional I will do this. That's not how people work. No one's going to be like, I don't care. Like how, like no one, I don't care how much they care about acting or whatever. They're not just going to go and just allow themselves to get basically assaulted and not even like blink. It's so unrealistic. And I know that she's like, that's because that's who she wishes she was. Like, that she could just go and be in those scenes uncomfortable and just do it, be an actress, and get those leads. And that's not 
the reality. And this is kind of what I was hinting at earlier with like, you know, what is Lynch trying to say about Hollywood? Is he trying to impart or imply some kind of greater truth of this is what casting is like? This is what it's like behind the set? Or was this just him thinking of like the most salacious way he could film a scene possible? I think it's just as simple as like he just thinks that Hollywood's kind of gross. It's a common theme in his movies, and you don't have to, like, necessarily see it as this incredibly deep, nuanced take. It's just, like, Mm. if Lynch is going to present filmmaking in his work, he's going to remind you that Hollywood is kind of gross. But to him, it's just, like, he's not trying to make, like, an incredibly nuanced commentary. He's just presenting what he sees as factual. That's how I see it anyway. And especially based on like how he describes himself in movies, it's like he's just presenting what he thinks the world is like. It's not necessarily any less or more complicated than that. It's and I think like Twin a- Geeks has that aspect a lot too, where like people want to read like try to figure out exactly what he meant by this or that and it's like he just thinks the world is kind of fucked up and he's just displaying that yeah like if you're an anti-capitalist person you're not going to make a film where capitalism is all good and dandy and is the uh solution to all the bad things it's because you have that different perspective so if you are someone who is in the industry and you know that the industry fucking sucks and you're not going to be one of those people who just are like yes it's amazing here everyone gets their um whatever they get because everything's fair there's no nepotism there's no sexual assault there's no any of that like if you are one of those people who believe that then yeah you're gonna bring like act like that is the reality of the world because it is your reality but there also is that like aspect to it of like lynch's simplicity versus you know like like a dork like me that that's kind of what we're getting at is like you know i'm looking at this from the dork perspective i'm getting way too deep into the reads but the simple observation is in fact enough and with film it's a lot less about what you say and how you show it and i think that's lynch's mastery in film yes. it's not what he says it's how he shows it mm-hmm. well and that's crucial to this in particular because i feel like there's kind of a an interpretation of this film um, uh, that is, like, based on just... I think the film is kind of just trying to straightforward explain this mystery to you in a lot of ways. And it just happens that it's also kind of twisted around in a lot of parts and things, and so it can kind of confuse you. But I think, like... Mm. David Lynch is giving a number of critical cues through the filmmaking to try to let you as the viewer know what's going on. And the first time you watch Mulholland Drive tends to be this, like, hallucination experience, kind of. (laughs) But, like, the tenth time you watch it, you're like, yep, it's a mystery. I I know how this mystery goes. And, And it just feels like 
oddly straightforward. Yeah, which I think, you know, is is the thing that everyone tripped up on. And this is another theme that we wanted to get into, which is, you know, dreams versus reality. This plays like the most pivotal, if confusing role in the movie, which is, you know, wh- which parts were hallucinated, which parts were real. And initially in my read of the movie, the parts that I thought were the dream were actually the parts you thought were real and vice versa. But I'm starting to come around to your um, read of the film where uh, the first two thirds of the movie broadly were a hallucination or a dream. And the last part is where we uncover reality. Before I get into my defense of that take, Sky, what did you think? Um, I do think, I think the last third is of the reality and the, um, first two thirds are a part of the dream. And I think the dream is right before she dies. Yeah. I think this is like a consciousness that she's having or like an idea she's having right before death. Yeah, I think that's pretty, um, a pretty valid and interesting take. There's definitely a few ways to interpret some of the specifics here, but I definitely think that, yeah, the first two-thirds of the movie roughly are a dream. And the main justification for this is that uh, we see the camera go into Diane's bed like, literally get, like, pulled into Diane's bed and fade out Mm -hmm. in this, like, falling asleep kind of way as basically the first major shot in the film after this weird dance sequence that I don't really know what exactly... (laughs) I think it was just... It was just David Lynch, like, making a naked joke of, like, they're swing dancing. They're swing dancing. And then you find out... What is Rita's real name? Is it, uh... Um, Camilla. Camilla. Camilla and the director are are together, and she's also with Diane's doppelganger, and also she's a lot more open with her sexuality. So I think that was just him kind of making like a more harmless joke, if anything. But I think it's you know Lynch doesn't care what we think. I think it's just a visual tie-in, possibly too. Like it's just like it's just an aesthetic thing to get you like prepared for the movie kind of thing Mm. because again i I think that is what's so special about david lynch is that like this is this is about creating an experience to him Mm -hmm. um and that's why he part he sees it as so straightforward even though like it's for us it's like it comes across kind of complex in some cases with his film so complex that like so i have a pretty straightforward interpretation of this film but like I've seen Inland Empire. I don't know what that is. What's crazy, too, is it's billed as a thriller. So, like, apparently something is happening in that movie, but I don't know what happened. I watched it. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I didn't necessarily hate it, but it's not my favorite Lynch film. It's pretty pretty out there. But I would watch it again. Um <laughs> But um, back to Mulholland Drive. 
basically, I think David Lynch is trying to cue us in there at the beginning that, you know, we're going into a dream. And that basically, you know, a lot of mystery films revolve around the psychology of the killer in some fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and David Lynch, I think, is trying to present us with something like that in a lot of ways, but just in this less straightforward than we're used to manner. Because this is all Diane's dream. And Diane is effectively our killer. I mean, she hires a killer to do the actual dirty work, but still, I mean, she's the one with the intention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in the same way that like a lot of other mysteries would be about the psychology of the killer and unraveling that in some way to understand how and why this happened. I feel like that's what this is. Like, we are seeing Diane's thoughts and fantasies. Um, and through that, we're getting this view into her psychology and why she did it. Mm. And then we come out into reality and we get that we get this rapid-fire view into, um, you know, the actual circumstances that led to Camilla, the real person, not Rita, exactly, is death. Um, and, uh, and then ultimately to Diane's suicide because she can't handle the grief and uh, anguish of what she's done. So, like, that's, I think, how I see it for the most part. Now, there are some complicating factors to this um, mm-hmm. that I will, like, address at least one major one is the cowboy. Yes. Because the cowboy specifically tells us that we'll see him two more times if we're bad. And we do see him two more times. And the second time we see him is in reality. Um... So that's kind of interesting because chronologically that would have happened before the dream, theoretically, the cowboy walking through that party, assuming he's even there at all in reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it adds up to the second time, which kind of gives the cowboy sort of this meta-knowledge of the film itself in a way. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And again, I think, you know, I'm probably, like, reading more into it than than Lynch himself would want me to, to some extent. But I do think that there's something there of, like... There is kind of this straightforward interpretation of the film that you can see once you've, like, watched it, especially a few times and things like that, that I'm describing and that I think a lot of people kind of subscribe to. But... You just muted yourself. Yeah, sorry. I had to cough suddenly. Um, but is it as straightforward as, like, that's just the dream and then this other thing is just reality? Um, I think is something that you're meant to not necessarily just feel is entirely cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Especially because the last third, um, there's 
when you're going back into like the past of Diane, like when she's working with or um like making love to Camila, when she's going in the car to the engagement party, all of that also still feels dreamy. Like it is the way it's shot is more dreamlike than the actual dream. Uh, the way like it. It felt more unhinged. Yes. I mean, yes, but that was also trying to show us that, like, Diane's life is more unhinged. Like, Betty's life is perfect. She's got, uh, she's getting roles and offers and, like, living for free in her aunt's place and got a sexy-ass girlfriend. And, And that's the thing, is, like, in that way, Rita still exists in the fantasy because Rita is not... Camilla. Camilla is self-actualized and polyamorous. She is unattainable to Di- to Diane permanently. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. that way. So like the only way Camilla fits in Diane's fantasy is for her not to be herself, i.e. having amnesia. Right. She forgets who she is and how she loves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Betty is deceptive. Like, Betty is sort of playing innocent, but clearly, like, aiming towards certain goals. Uh, And I think that's important, too, because that's something you slowly realize as the viewer. Like, Betty at first seems like a more reliable and trustworthy kind of, like, narrator, etc., than she really is. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, I think, like, the most telling scene, of course, is, like, as they're about to make love, uh, Rita asks Betty, have you ever done this before? And Betty says, I don't know. Which is, that's kind of a funny answer, isn't it? How would you not know? You're not the one with him, basically. You know, right? Like, like they. I mean, because I, I'm, fr- I'm framing it slightly wrong because it's like they both kind of say, "I don't know," but it's like, but it's like Betty is sort of like being deceptive about her own level of knowledge. Like Rita obviously has amnesia and has no idea what kinds of sex she's had before. Um, mm-hmm. But like, Betty is playing like a similar level of coyness. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I've done before either. And it's like, yes, you do. You don't have amnesia. What are you talking about? You know if you right. if you're into women or not. Like um I mean like you could be experimenting for the first time, but like that's not the way it's framed. It's framed in this like she's just kind of like hiding her her hand a little bit. And there's a lot of that with Betty. You come to like look especially looking back on it or watching it again. You come to realize that like, "Oh, Betty is like Betty is like basically seducing Rita from the start but being very coy and shy about it and trying not to let on that that's the case. Especially mm-hmm. to us as the viewer. I, I think that's that's a completely fair read. I think there's a couple f- points that still like stick out to me and they don't stick out to me like a sore thumb because I did have fun with them. But they are like odd in the sense of, you know, they kind of break the 
the tone just a little bit. So the first is like the old couple we see at the start of the movie at the airport. And then them all of a sudden coming out from the door during the scene where Diane commits suicide in a kind of, it's meant to be scary, but it also, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. It was funny when I saw it. It was funny. It, it was, was funny. Like they, funny. they, they, they it, crawl it, their it, way through. Too, I think like it's, it's sort of meant to be scary, but it's not like, this is not a horror film. And it, yeah. it's meant to be like a little bit freaky, but also kind of corny and like weird. I think that's all intentional. And I think intentionally too, like there's no real explanation of like, actually, wait, actually, wait, no, no, no. It adds up because the words the old lady says when she drops, leaves Betty at the airport is we'll be seeing you on the big screen someday. And Diane has never gotten a role, right? Like, I think she had like a commercial or something. And then like, she got roles, but she didn't get main roles. So she's like background characters and all of Camille. So it's kind of funny, like, those are her imagined fans showing up to, like, <laughs> be well, what she also, could never have, I guess. So there's there's a couple more wrinkles to that, because also the old people appear in the alleyway with the mysterious homeless man. Mm. And that's another, like, so all of that is kind of links back to the, what exactly is dreams and reality? is a little complex here um, mm-hmm. because there's like the guy who had the bad dream about the alley and he apparently exists in what you know is presumably Diane's dream for whatever reason mm-hmm. <laughs> but also Diane's uh, reality he also witnessed like the deal go down even if he didn't hear everything right right um, and uh, anyway I think the I think the old people in a quirky way represent like maybe Diane's sort of loss of innocence in a way or something along those lines. It's like when she first gets to LA, she meets these nice old people and uh, it's like this very wholesome, innocent interaction basically that seems to sort of set her journey on the right track. But of course, this is all in her dream as Betty. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like when the old people come at her at the end, it's like her guilt is catching up with her because she's no longer innocent. It's a very odd visual metaphor to use this nice old couple <laughs> as your <laughs> prop for this. But also, why not, I guess? <laughs> It makes emotional sense. Whether or not it makes logical or, you know, visual sense is another matter. But again, it was it was entertaining. And I think like you also touched on the other wrinkle I was gonna bring up, which is the mysterious homeless man. And the only real vibe I got, aside from, oh, he's scary and he scares the guy who the detective talks to at the start of the movie. I think the a bit like the cowboy the homeless guy is supposed to be like this all-knowing character who can see between dreams and reality. And my overall take is like, okay, the homeless guy knows what happened and won't tell anyone. But he's basically like winking at the audience. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think like 
there's definitely some kind of, uh, I don't know, there's definitely something there, um, where, yeah, it's, it's unclear exactly what it's supposed to mean per se, but the homeless guy definitely, he sits on that bridge between dreams and reality somehow. It's just unclear how to some extent. And I think it's okay that it's unclear. I think that's, you know, what watching this movie twice and thinking on it is so long is like, maybe not everything needs to be resolved in a movie for it to be good. Yeah. A lot of this movie doesn't get resolved. (laughs) The, Uh the big uh, corporate mystery with the studio never gets resolved. Right. Um, but I think a lot of that, if you view it, if you view all of this as the lens of Betty's fantasy, I do think a lot of the weird elements start to make sense and the unresolved elements start to make sense because the, the shadowy corporate stuff, it's like Diane's trying to justify, so I should, I should have said Diane's fantasy. Um, Diane's trying to justify like why... She's never really gotten as far ahead as Camilla or other people around her. And so she she in her fantasy likes to see it as this big conspiracy, you know? People meeting in the dark far away from her and she has no control over it. And so by the time she gets to that audition, it doesn't matter because it's already been decided that someone else will be chosen for that part, right? Like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is all, this is all Diane's fantasy. And, you know, in reality, it may not even be that inaccurate in some cases necessarily. But the point is, is that this is how she sees it. And it's important for her to see it this way. Um, you know, so it's like, yeah, she, she, she gets to that audition, that sort of once in a lifetime opportunity audition, it sounds like. And she blows it by running off, but but it doesn't matter. Because it had already been decided in a boardroom a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, like, through the lens of, like, this is Diane's fantasy, that makes sense of that to me in a lot of ways. And it's like, okay, we don't necessarily have to have it all explained because, again, it's, it's, it's a dream. It's Diane's dream. Uh, her dream of, like, you know, a perfect life in Hollywood going exactly as she wants. And it's a mishmash of her actual... I think this is another important factor. It's a mishmash of her actual, like, arrival in Hollywood to some extent, what that was like, probably. But it's also mm-hmm. mashed up with the the, like, current events in her life. It's also mashed up with fantasy. And it's also mashed up with the future... Because she sees her own corpse. Like, exactly as it will be when she kills herself in real life. Oh, yeah. Her Um, and Rita go inside of Diane's apartment. Right. So, it's, it's a bunch of different things jumbling together in the dream. And it's tough to decipher in some parts what's what. But I do think a lot of it, you know, just interpreting this as, like, 
Again, this is the view into the killer's psychology. This is all Diane's fantasies, and this is all things from different parts of her life coming together to tell us, as the viewer, the information we need to solve the mystery of what happened to Rita. And, it, I, like, think about how clever that actually is. From the very beginning of the movie, we know what the mystery is, but also we have no fucking clue what the mystery is. Right. But from the very beginning of the movie, we want to know what happened to Rita. Well, the truth is, her name is Camilla, and she's dead. <laughs> Even though it seems like she's alive. For a large part of the movie. It's really crazy how, like, they had the, the blonde Camilla in Betty's dream. How she was, like, the person <laughs> getting all the roles and everything. And she was the girl. Like, she was the one. And then you realize in the reality, Camilla is her partner. Like, she is the girl that she loves. Um, this is the girl. And she, yes. And she is the one who's getting all of the, like, roles and everything. And I think, like, there's just very much a... Uh, they're trying to insinuate that she has slept for her roles. Um in a lot of situations and that sex is the reason why people get these roles which is why the blonde Camilla in the reality she kisses Camilla and like that's the only interaction that we see that her and Diane are having so right. like literally Diane like created her as the big villain in her head from this one small interaction um because she doesn't want to see Camilla as the bad guy. She wants Camilla to be like the ditzy person who she's in love with and um, who they would do anything for. And it's just them against the world where that's not the reality. Yeah. Um, so I think... Uh... Yeah, it's really, I don't know, it's, it's, it's fascinating how it's like the movie is set up to have you asking some of the right questions, even though it's going to pull the rug out from one of you, under you two-thirds of the way through. Um, and looking at things sort of the right way. Um, but yeah, um, again, just looking back at everything as... as uh, as Diane's fantasy, I think is it's just so crucial to understanding the first two thirds of the movie. Even like some of the weirdest scenes start to make sense um, when you look at it this way. Like there's that scene where the hitman in the dream, um, who is also the hitman in real life, uh, is like really incompetent. Mm hmm. And again, uh, Diane's fantasy from the very beginning of this dream requires that. So it's like, it seems really bizarre to have this sort of slapsticky scene where this guy is like <laughs> sloppily murdering several people in an office building. Um, and like, it's almost like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, except like there's death. Uh,. Is like Diane's fantasy requires this because her fantasy in the dream all starts with some kind of attempt on Rita's life that fails. <clears throat> and 
it's like that's like the the remorse, you know. And I think that's critical to all of this too. Is like just Diane regrets doing this, as most people would, right? Like most people are not capable of doing something so heartless as seeing to the death of someone they used to love, <clears throat> and then just like going about their life like everything's normal. Uh. And, uh, yeah, it's just, like, Diane would kind of almost do anything to, like, take it back, but you can't. Uh, but in the dream, you know, the hitman can be incompetent as hell. Maybe it doesn't work out. That's probably where, um the metaphor of the box in the film and even like the um the weird like performance art they had going on there is no band this is an illusion the, yeah, that the was whole... lynch actually just telling us this is not the real part of the movie and my dumb ass was trying to read yes, into this. Literally. literally like trying to engulf everything like maybe this will tell me yeah it will tell you that this is an illusion like it's it's literally telling you um and like the part where the um woman is singing and like the that song like we looked at the english lyrics of the song and it's called crying and it's literally about like someone being in love with someone else and the other person doesn't love them but they're like but i will still love you um, even though it hurts, I'm still going to love you and I'm just going to be crying. And the fact that they were crying during that scene, but like, like Betty didn't know Spanish from what we know of. And even though Rita is a Latina, like it still wasn't a hundred percent like that. She knew Spanish. We hadn't heard her. It like, implied she knows. Spanish. Yeah. yeah. So like, just like all of that, like. And the fact that, like, the um, singer collapses and everyone's just, like, so shook, even though we've already been told there is no band, this is an illusion. Yeah. Um, but Lynch made a straightforward movie, and I spent all this time thinking it was something else. Oh, I literally spent hours on that Wikipedia page as soon as we finished watching it. Like, hours. Like, the rest <laughs> of that night, and then... The morning I got up and I read more stuff. And it was crazy. Just hearing, like, all of the different um, film critics, like, what they had to say. It was just like, oh, my God. And then for Lynch to be like, yeah, it's, it's kind of whatever, man. I'm not going to really tell you how you interpret a movie. That's not really the point of it. And you're just like, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a cheat code somewhere um i think it's just a i think it's just a, a, a murder mystery at the end of the day i think it's just a soap opera and i think you know again it was originally a tv pilot lynch's one tv show twin peaks is a soap opera like it's possibly the the highest prestige soap opera ever made but like if you've actually seen this shit you know what i'm saying 
Uh, mm. It is like very soapy. There's long parts of the plot that revolve around these two teenagers who are in love, but they're both too messy and wounded, and they keep getting into weird messes together, and there's just, like, immense long scenes of them just, like, staring at each other. They fucking sing a song together. They get into a love triangle. Like, how could this not be more soap opera? <laughs> It's just so over the top. And so I think, okay, so he was pitching another show. He was pitching another soap opera, all right? Another high-prestige soap opera. David Lynch might be the only person to truly attempt the high-prestige soap opera, which is ironic because a lot of people want to try to ape Twin Peaks, but they don't ape that part of it, really. <laughs> um, they're just all about, like, the oh, it's a... It's a it's a convoluted mystery in a small town and everyone has secrets. People borrow that part. But I think like they forget it's like no, a big part of what made this show great was that it was just like so corny and soapy and everybody's in these weird messy relationships and like it's just all so ridiculous and over the top and like almost unbelievable but at the same time like just barely kind of within the confines of reality that's david lynch <laughs> that's what he loves that's this movie you know uh it's it was not his attempt to make the deepest film ever in fact i think even if you want to argue that like he has like like, he, in general, does, like, make, like, he tries to make films that are more straightforward than we often see them, um, in a, in a sense. I think, you know, you could at least argue that there are some films where maybe he had, like, slightly deeper themes in mind. I really don't think he had the deepest of themes in mind here. I think he wanted a nice, sensational kind of mystery thing with lots of spice and scandal and steaminess. Other words that start with S. <laughs> I know that he really, like, at first, I was reading, like, at first when it wasn't picked up as a TV show, like, obviously, like anyone else, he was, like, disappointed. But, like, as soon as it was picked up as a film, like, he was like, it, it was always supposed to be a film. Like, this is this is what it's meant to be. And, like, that idea of, like, everything happens for a reason, kind of. And, like, yes, this didn't succeed as a TV show because it never was supposed to. It was supposed to succeed as a movie. And, um, like, we don't even know if that TV show had, like, a point. Like, if he knew <laughs> what was going to happen past, oh, like, the first part. Like, he was just like, it's going to come to me whenever it does. This, this <laughs> is what I meant when I say is Lynch the White Iraqi because he kind of wings it. But... <laughs> See, I think um, Iraqi must think out some of this stuff a little bit, though. Like, yeah, because he he mentioned how he sort of plotted out the idea for stands a bit, you know, before the start of part three. Um, and like, he had like a vague idea of how they'd work, which is why like 
initially like they're all tied to the major arcana and stuff it's because like a lot of that was sort of thought out to some extent mm-hmm. um david lynch when he was making twin peaks he was literally just winging that show <laughs> uh it it was just off the cuff um he had no idea how the mystery was gonna end it was all based on these like visuals and things that he was into um now see here's part of what makes david lynch so special is that okay so david lynch he does not actually give a shit about the deepest of meta commentaries and things like that but what he does give a shit about is art and so like here's something a lot of people don't know is that um when laura palmer washes up on the beach uh draped in plastic and with like the pebbles in her hair that's meant to emulate a famous painting. I forget what the name of it is. But it's like, at, you see the painting, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it's incredible, actually. And, like, David Lynch really cares about shit like that. That's what he cares about. He cares about art and artistry. He paints a lot himself. Um, and it's uh, uh, pretty much all he does now. People keep asking, are you going to make a film? And he's just like, no, and then he just paints some more. Um. <laughs> yeah, he's he's just been doing like so many art shows. Like every few years, he'll have like a different art show somewhere. But like, when's the last time he's done any Hollywood stuff? Well, now it's Twin Peaks in 2017. But like, do you think he's ever gonna come back? Probably not, because you have to have everything so drawn out to be able to get funding from like any for any art now unless you already have the funding yourself uh but you have to you have to show like what what it is um how are we gonna do merchandising do we have sequels do we have this like do we have the rights to every single thing in the world like there's just so much to think about when it comes to making movies and just television now compared to in 2000 like he started this in what 1999 that's that was yeah worlds ago you know what this this kind of brings everything we've talked about today all together actually because um kennedy you mentioned like the prestige treatment and sky you were mentioning like the fact that everything needs to be fleshed out fully this had me thinking about like you know what has prestige tv done to what viewers expect of entertainment but conversely like how has it shaped the entertainment industry and the thing about prestige content especially like i'd say like maybe not the sopranos onwards but definitely like breaking bad onwards this idea of poignance of uh things having this deep subtext and meta commentary and commentary like we are conditioned now like pavlovian dogs in a way to expect that in everything we watch and i'm shaped by that that's why like i applied it the minute i watched this movie first and you know to to kind of tie back everything that's been said today not to bring marvel back into this but that's why they thrive now because it's easy to plan that shit out long term and secure the funding for it especially if you're just using the art existing ip yeah yeah. Somebody already created and you're just putting it into the 2022 filter. But but even then, well, like, you know, even it, Oh, go ahead, go ahead. 
Well, and I think tying tying some of these thoughts together as well is that like David Lynch would kind of hate to sort of create a universe or to have people try to fit all of his films into one coherent universe or something like that. Like, he would despise that, as far as I can tell. <laughs> um, and, and I think, you know, like, that's antithetical to the way a lot of media is now. It's all about these universes, these deeper stories and stuff. And it's like, here's this movie that, you know, we're never going to see these characters again. Um, first of all, the two primary characters of the movie are both fucking dead, so that doesn't help. <laughs> um, uh, but also, like, we're just, you know, that, even if there was some way to try to, like, spin off of that or something, like, David Lynch would never be for it. Um, <clears throat> unless, like, it was truly, like, a really good idea, but it would never be, like, a a long-spanning series of things. It'd be, like, one more film, maybe. <laughs> or something like that. Um, kind of like how he made Fire Walk With Me for Twin Peaks, which, you know, could be seen as sort of a cash-in, but it was, like, he did it because he could see a value in it, you know? And then he made, like, a pretty interesting movie out of it. Um, and honestly, H- I don't think... Weird shit, so... I don't think he would at all, like, try to bring these characters back. I think if he did, for some reason, like, come back with a movie or a show, he would bring the two or a lot of the leading stars into the, like, show and then have, like, that similar vibe so you can get that, like, oh, look, he's doing it, but he won't make them the exact same character. And what is he going to do? Show, like these people who have aged 20 years beautifully i will say um but like as these young women pre <laughs> the death of them pre like the that does not make sense yeah. I, he's about to get into some cgi and <clears throat> the star wars that's, that's some other oh, shit God. that i'm sure he fucking hates for the most i mean like he he doesn't necessarily hate it in the sense that like if he if he watched the new star wars that he'd be mad if, when he saw it but if somebody suggested he do it, he'd be like, fuck off. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, how about you create a whole new movie as a sequel or, like, prequel or whatever using this technology? He'll be like, fuck off and get the fuck away from me. And He's like, I, don't make me create a murder movie right now. I think that's one of the interesting things that's kind of the secret to this and in a way a lot of Lynch films to an extent is that like yes there is depth to them but also don't try to don't try to necessarily read what past what's there too far because like here is a movie that like is intentionally sort of designed to like confuse and befuddle you but realistically if you just take the move, the film at its word, it's telling you what's going on, <laughs> and that's something that I think has been missed today of all, like like these days with film is like you know, film as a standalone experience. Like whether you pop into the theater to watch it or whether you know you pop in the DVD player and watch it, film as an experience to be consumed while watching it, and then that's the end of it. That's something that doesn't happen anymore. And now you have, like, mountains of supplemental content surrounding things. Whether it's, you know, uh, 
sequels or a spinoff series, whether it's like mountains of YouTube videos of people trying to analyze the subtext. And there's a whole industry, I mean, a cottage industry of people drawing subtext from things that exist, right? Yeah. It's all fan fiction, babe. (laughs) And, like, it's it's so annoying because it's, like, you can't just, like, show a lot of this stuff to just anyone. Or, like, it's hard to get people into, like, this shit past a certain point. And I can relate to that problem because, like, I'm into Gundam. And it's like, how do you get someone into Gundam? It's really fucking complicated, actually. To big try fucking to robots. Big to fucking robots. <laughs> but but for what I mean is that, okay, so the the original series of, of Mobile Suit Gundam is ancient, okay? It's one of the oldest kind of serious... The 80s, right? It was, it was like, there was... There were only one or two things before Gundam. I'm going to figure out when it came out. Hold on. But uh, there were only one or two things... Before Mobile Suit Gundam, and uh, basically the the first thing was uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes, which was remade and renamed as Star Blazers, like eight years ago. It's really good, the remake, mm-hmm. um, uh, which was like the first kind of serious anime uh, where like these studios were trying to make like a, a concentrated shift towards telling stories towards like a slightly older and more mature audience in general. Um, uh, through animation. And uh, Mobile Suit Gundam comes not that long after. So it started airing in 1979. Alright? It's it's old as fuck. Okay? <laughs> so if somebody wants to get into Gundam and like really get into it, it's like, we can't watch that. Okay? That sucks ass. <laughs> so like, but, but at the same time, if I if I put on Mobile Suit Gundam Unicorn, which was made like ten years ago, looks fucking beautiful, you know, really enjoyable to watch, uh, etc. Um, they immediately start talking about fifteen years ago in the Grips conflict. We thought that that was the last time we'd see a weapon like this, and that you know, the person next to you is like, "What are they talking about? I'm, the Grips conflict? What is that?" Like you know, and you're like, "That's a whole other series that we probably won't ever watch." Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) And, like, Marvel movies have this problem now where it's, like, these movies don't begin and end, right? Like, you walk into one and it's, like, the heroes are already at the war council table, like, all right, we got to take out Dr. Evilface. And it's, like, wait, who's Dr. Evilface? Why do we already have a villain? Who who are these guys sitting around the table? There was, like, a web series. There was, like, a sub, like, uh, TV one-shot. Like, Dr. Evilface, the guy who was on the screen for five minutes, eight movies ago? I don't remember him. That's, that's, that's like, the thing. is um, That's why it exists. Because it's profitable to have that kind of machinery where you can just draw characters up, up your ass have all these networks of content sell merch for every sub piece of content and have it thrive that's why you know this stuff thrives in the way that it does and i i keep i keep coming back to this point and i sound like a broken record about this but it's ultimately damaging for art yeah yeah and i think it's great that lynch rejects that um so much so that like within lynn empire he like intentionally made it 
in some ways, one of his least accessible films ever, just to be like, yeah, fuck you, I don't care. Like, I don't <laughs> care. I don't care that this is completely against, like, I'm doing things that are completely against the trend, and that will be seen as sort of, like, tacky or gauche in some way. I'm just gonna do it. Um, and, like, I, it's really cool, because, like, even if that's, like, a weird and, and not necessarily his best film, it's, like, it's cool that he's always had that ethos of, re- of rejection. And I think, like, when it comes out at his best moments, it's, like, you get films like this and Blue Velvet that are some of the best films ever made, in my opinion. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, if we're going to move to wrap this up, we do have to talk about one more thing, though, by the way. Go on. Blonde women and brunette women. <laughs> I was wondering when it would come up. It's like, he literally told me, he was like, I was like, what is this movie about? And he was like, a blonde woman and a brunette woman. And I'm like, honestly, just give it to me. Like, I, I don't <laughs> care. I don't care what kind of trope it is for blonde and brunette women. That is just truly, how do you get me in, like interested? Blonde and brunette. Oh, <laughs> And they're both really hot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you got me. There's a lesbian scene. What the? should have started that. I didn't know there was a lesbian scene. I, I know. Yeah, I, I, I did really no warning. Be <laughs> Which I appreciate you giving me no warning. All you told me, and like, sorry to steal your joke there, but it's, it's so fucking funny. <sighs> this movie is a movie about a brunette. And a blonde. It's it truly is like that's that was the perfect description because literally after the movie, after everything was said and done, I was like, that was a movie about a brunette and a blonde woman. Uh, and yes, that is true. And that's all David Lynch was trying to say. That's all this movie that's was about. All he was trying to say is like, hey, here's these two women. That's it. <laughs> um. So this, I'll say, this this is a conversation that we can start it now, but we may have to circle back to this. Maybe, you know, some months down the road, y'all can watch Blue Velvet. We'll get back together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Blonde Woman and Brunette Woman is a, a central theme to all of Lynch's storytelling for some reason. <laughs> he said there are no redheads. <laughs> Not one. I've never seen a redhead. Black hair? I don't know what that is. No, uh, there is a redhead in that movie. It's the ants. Yeah. On Ruth, who went away. <laughs> went away meant died. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the what if there was a blonde woman and brunette woman dichotomy is critical to Twin Peaks. It's crucial to Blue Velvet. It's very important to Lost Highway. Uh, it appears in Eraserhead, his first film. Oh God. Um, I'm. I can't say this with absolute certainty because I I still haven't seen um, Wild at Heart. I do plan to watch it sometime this year because honestly, I don't know why. I love David Lynch so much, and I love Nicolas Cage. Why have I not watched Wild at Heart? Doesn't make Wait, sense. Wait, there is a Nicolas um, Cage. David there Lynch is movie. Nicolas Cage. Gotta watch it. Yeah, we're booking you again for this. Hang on. 
have to do a David Lynch series. David Lynch series. Oh my god. David Lynch magic. Um. Yeah. Uh, I just think, I don't know, there's something, and the thing is, it's not necessarily that deep, but it's just, like, there's just something about David Lynch's, like, personal sexual preferences, maybe, or something. (laughs) 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 It's so funny that this, this, this is a, a trope of his films. Is that there's a, a a blonde woman and a brunette woman and they're entangled? How many times is the blonde woman like the villain? Um, it varies because in Blue Velvet, okay, it's pretty complex. And if anything, the brunette is a little bit more of the troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Without giving too much away. Um. Uh, and in Twin Peaks, it's like our initial golden blonde girl is Laura Palmer, who is dead, um, and who is perceived as like a perfect angel by the town, but was in fact into a lot of shady shit. And that's pretty complex. She's not really a villain. She's a victim, obviously. Um, but, uh... You know, complicated character, but also her brunette best friend, complicated character. And then, well, I mean, she's sort of like got the medium hair, and then there's a really brunette character. There's there's a lot of hair in Twin Peaks. (laughs) (laughs) In conclusion, we are looking respectfully. And disrespectfully. (laughs) All right. Intensely. I mean, in conclusion, though, we are, like, lynch-pilled. Like, I'm down to watch a couple more lynch movies and definitely have you back on the show to discuss them, because this this was a blast. Yes. A lot of fun, folks. folks, I've had a lot of fun. No rush or anything, but it would be a fun thing to circle back to at some point. Um, I definitely think we should should watch Blue Velvet next, uh, because I think Blue Velvet is also quite the masterpiece. Very enjoyable. Although we could maybe do Wild at Heart just because Nicolas Cage and David Lynch. <laughs> How can we go wrong? Am I right? Double feature? <laughs> no, I don't think we, we would, that would turn into like a five hour podcast because we'd have so much to fuck <laughs> today. Um, just release it as 10 parts. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh. You know, when you think about it, though, David Lynch and Nicolas Cage are a great combo for one another because, again, David Lynch actually kind of likes to make things that are maybe a little more straightforward than they seem um, and are just kind of, like, on some level, romps, even if they're, like, confusing and hallucinogenic to the point where, like, sometimes you just feel like, as the viewer, you have no idea what the fuck's going on. Like, if we ever watch Lost Highway, y'all are going to be like, what... Happened, and I'll be like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, Nicolas Cage also kind of likes to just make movies. 
just full stop. Just like, give me the fucking money. <laughs> Put it in the bag, and I will act my ass off. He I don't be acting his ass off. What it's about <laughs> at all? I will do any. Give me the script. I'm pretty sure his manager is like, or his agents like. I got you a script, and he's like, "Okay, yes." Well, the the, le- the the reason is because like he's in a lot of debt, so he's trying to pay it off with whatever he can get. But the thing is, is he gives it his all, even in these okay. shitty roles. Yeah, I know. Like a lot of people say that, but I thought he was in debt recently, like the last like ten years, not his entire career. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't uh, even know how to qualify that. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to qualify so, that. Like I'm just saying, maybe it's just about his paper. He just he's like you. Maybe he's got a goal for the amount of he wants to be in. Maybe, maybe he's gonna break the Guinness World Records. You never know. It's no, really yeah. he has a lot of ridiculous debt. Like I, I finally had to read into this at one point because I was so curious, and like he just like. When he was rolling in money, he just bought like the absolute stupidest shit you can imagine. Basically, is a gravesite in New Orleans, a bunch of houses, stuff like that. Um, the hauntedest like, house in uh, New Orleans. A, a ton of exotic animals. Um, a bunch of like rare fossils and shit. Like all kinds of dumbass, bizarro shit. Like not just like regular. I'm spending money shit, but just, like, I'm spending as much money I can on fucking any expensive thing I fucking get my eyes on, period. <laughs> just... <laughs> it's a very American thing to do with wealth. It's, like, it's not even, like, something that you expect to be nice. It's just, like, huh. That's expensive just because it is. Put it in the cart. Put it in the cart now. Very wild stuff. Yeah, and th- there's another aspect in Nick Cage that I, I don't know to what extent this is true, and I don't want to like feed into celebrity myths a- as well. But like, he is related to Ford Francis Coppola, and he took on the name Nick Cage because he didn't want to benefit from any nepotism. So like, if true, I I respect him for that, even though, uh, you know, those financial decisions are a little questionable. Very questionable. Very questionable. (laughs) He's also been married so many times. Okay, so yes, there will be a Nick Cage deep dive we have to work on soon because it is it is getting to be that time. No, honestly, don't start it soon. Do your film series for a while because you're gonna need a lot of information. Oh yeah. Do your film series for a little bit first and then do the deep dive because it's going to be so deep. There's so much, there's so much there. First of all, he's made like 7,000 films. So, you know, you're going to spend the rest of your life watching them. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that person already exists. Like there's someone who knows Nick Cage's filmography front to back. I will say it's literally like it. He's got so much that he has to have another, like Wikipedia page for like his films and like awards and shit like that. Oh lord! Like imagine that. He's got to have a time turner, right? It. <laughs> or a clone. 
I still have he to see that. definitely has a clone. I, I still have okay. to see that new movie that came out with him. What is it? The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. It's him and Nick Pena are in it. Or sorry, um, Javi. Oh my god. Sorry. Pedro Pascal are in it. That's, oh, yeah. that's one of the funny things about Nick Cage is that he makes garbage films nonstop. Uh, but then he'll also like, he'll make like a really good film every like two to four years. Just... Maybe that's just his philosophy. He's like, if I'm just in so many films, eventually some of them by statistics have to be good. You know, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Nick Cage is like a David Lynch movie. There's a thousand ways to interpret him. But it's best done when we just watch it and enjoy. He's just a guy. He's just a guy. He's a national treasure. I don't know what else to say. Two and three. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Like... When I think of Mount Rushmore, I'm pretty sure I only really think about National Treasure when they were like in Mount Rushmore. Like I don't think I have a real context of like other than like that it was stolen land that we were like, yeah, you can have it. <laughs> Just kidding, we're gonna put some ugly ass white people in them. Um, but like I literally think of National Treasure when it comes to Mount Rushmore and sadness. I think if you are going to deface a mountainside, it should be for David Lynch and Nick Cage. I think, yeah, I think David Lynch and Nick Cage should be. Also, did you know that they were they wanted those fucking heads to be like full bodied? I do know that. Yeah. That's literally so crazy, and the <laughs> and it just did not. They were like, no, we don't have any more money. They're just going to be heads, just floating heads. <laughs> That's fine now, right? That's not creepy at all, right? a good reason to take a sacred mountain right well done <laughs> in conclusion this was a great movie um out, out of five what are we giving it folks uh it's my it's my favorite film of all time <laughs> five out of five. i'm giving it a five i'm giving it a five i'm giving it a five or or more I will give it a 4.1. I think it's good, but if we're going to go 1 to 5, I got to be realistic. There's some things that I would have liked to seen. More lesbian scenes, obviously. Um, But I do think it was a really good movie. I'm just like, if this is a really good movie, what is a 5? Mm. You know, I think that's a I think that's a fair consideration. Um, before we close out, uh, Kennedy, anything you want to plug? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kennedy T Cooper. I do a lot of stuff. You'll find out about it there if you go there. That's it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, thanks again for tuning in, dear listener. This has been another episode of movie magic here on greenhouse gaslighting i'll put all our links to our socials and whatnot in the doobly-doo uh till then take care folks bye-bye bye